your Bibles, please turn to Philippians chapter 3. We'll begin a new series through the book of Ephesians just after Easter. But this is where we are this morning, Philippians chapter 3. What if we have a completely upside down view of what it means to be a Christian? What if we've bought a rotten bill of goods our whole lives that whispers to us of this grace that can get us saved, but then spends the rest of our lives as Christians screaming at us that if we don't measure up, then the kindness of God's grace doesn't really apply to us. It didn't take. What if our ongoing struggle with sin and sorrow and unbelief makes us think there's no possible way we are or even ever can be Christian, so this just isn't for us. We're either going to have to fake it or we're going to have to walk away. What if the constant pressure of other Christians, whether it's well-meaning or not, to do more, to be more, is starting to suffocate us? We're Baptists. We preach eternal security, right? But then you listen to most sermons and it's, yeah, if... You're doing enough. Are you doing enough? Are you committed enough? Are you serving enough? Because that's the only way you can know whether or not you're really saved. We're just going to walk through the first 14 verses of Philippians 3 today. And so maybe right now, even at this moment, you're saying, well, let me guess, Tony, you're going to tell us what it means to be a Christian. After all these years, now we need you to do this for us and shine your great light on us. No, I'm not going to do that this morning. I don't think that. But the Apostle Paul is. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on us all. Open your word to us, God. Send your spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. That is the law in sisters. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Speaking of circumcision, since circumcision is now of no spiritual value whatsoever. For we are the circumcision. The Jew Paul is writing to Gentile Christians. For we are the circumcision, the true people of God. So here you find, as you do in other places, the church is not simply, as though it's a simple thing, the bride of Christ. In this text, she is the circumcision. That word in the past had been reserved for ethnic Israel, but now this is God's one people from all nations whose circumcision is in the heart, not merely on the body. 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Namely, that is, obedience or adherence to the law, to things like circumcision as the sign that you belong to God. Those who would identify obedience to the law in all of its forms as the reason, as that being the reason for their confidence that they belong to God, they're the opposite of what Paul defines as the true circumcision. The true people of God. Paul looks to nothing in his flesh. He doesn't look to his performance. He doesn't look to his obedience. He doesn't look to the spiritual sign or the physical sign of being an old covenant Jewish person, his circumcision. He doesn't look to any of those things to find the confidence to know he is God's child, which would be absurd to say it was like that for over a thousand years. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also in verse four, Paul could add his obedience of the law to his spiritual circumcision that has now taken place in Christ. He's got the obedience. He has both, which is what the Judaizers, his opponents, and almost every place he went to, who, remember, didn't deny Christ outright. They said, yes, you need Christ, but you also need to be circumcised in your flesh and obey the law in order to be considered a true child of God. Again, Paul has both technically speaking. Again, that's what the Judaizers, his opponents, believed a person needed to belong to God. Circumcision and obedience, that is good standing in their flesh, in their bodies. They behave well. They're good people. And beloved, let us be clear. This is how most of us still try to find confidence and assurance today that we are Christians. There is nothing new under the sun. Yes, I have the grace of God, but I know that I do. I know that I'm justified with God by looking at my sanctification, Tony. In other words, I know that I'm justified and right with God because I can look to my works to see that it's there, that God must really be in me. And I can mix that with this grace that got me saved. And therefore, with grace and Jesus and obedience and a good will and a desire to do right, you put those two things together. Now I have confidence in this body that I belong to God. Paul continues in verse 4. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul has every reason to point to his obedience and use it as grounds for his assurance. He has every reason to do this more than anybody else. So Paul would be, if that is the way you know that you're made right with God, Paul is the standard, he's saying. He's the goal. He's what every, but what he's describing is what most every Christian is trying to do. Yes, I believe that I'm saved by grace through faith. But I need works to show that I'm saved by grace through faith. And if I want to have assurance that I'm saved by grace through faith, I have to look to my works. What else could I look to but what I'm doing and how I'm getting better? Am I a good Christian person? Paul would say, if you want a standard for that, it's me. Verse 5, and he describes exactly what he means. Circumcised on the eighth day. Paul is of obedient stock. 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul has the right ethnicity. A Hebrew of Hebrews. So of all the people trying to keep the law under God as his old covenant people, Paul is the best of the best in every measurable, observable way. As to the law, he writes, a Pharisee. That's what he was. He was a rigorous law keeper, keeping it, understanding it, teaching it. That was his life. You couldn't be more dedicated than Paul, a persecutor of the church. So Paul hated what seemed to be against God, what seemed to be against his law. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And he's not lying. No one had anything to bring against Paul. Paul was what one needed to be under the law in ethnicity, attitude, desire, performance. So what's the problem here? Why does it seem like he's making an argument that that's not the way to be? Why isn't he using obedience to buffer his assurance? What else are you supposed to use? Verse 7, but... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So apparently, those are two entirely different things. Obedience and Christ. Whatever confidence I could put in my ethnicity or obedience or desire to be obedient... Because we've dumbed down the law. Jesus says you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We have changed that to say you have to want to be perfect and try really hard to be perfect. That's changing the law of God. Whatever I could use to offer, Paul says, I consider it gone and of no use to me whatsoever. For the sake of Christ. We are not to look to our works for proof and certainly not for our assurance. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We Baptists don't like verses like that. I'm already saved. I know him. Paul's already saved. What is he talking about? Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So that's different. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is different than getting assurance from obedience. Because Paul doesn't want that. He wants to know Christ. Do you see that difference here? What Paul wants is something else, something better. And so do I. Knowing Jesus as Savior is of far more worth than bringing anyone or anything else to the table. It's not that good works have no worth in our lives. It's that the worth of knowing Jesus as the basis and the confidence and assurance and source of my salvation is way better than looking at my works to get those things. 
apparently, if we follow Paul's argument here, depending on our works for those things, prevents us from fully knowing Christ as he intended when he died for us. He's writing to saved people. Paul says in the middle of verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and he had, and count them as rubbish, which is a very, very kind word for what he said. In order that I may gain Christ. Paul does not then, this is important, Paul does not count only his flesh as loss, but also his obedience to the law. In context, what he counts as loss are all those things he could lean on to find God's approval that aren't Jesus. All the things he would have thought necessary if not for knowing Christ. Notice the use of the phrase, in order that. So Christ can only be truly known when all else has been forsaken, particularly our effort to be right before him by our works. Are we willing to forsake our own righteousness? That's the question the text is asking. Are you willing to count it as loss and stop using it as leverage or currency of some kind? Nobody's saying it's unimportant or shouldn't be there. My question, the text's question is, Are we willing to count it as absolute rubbish that does zero for my assurance or my salvation? For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. No matter what obedience we perform, you can't simultaneously say, Oh, yes, and in my mind I count these things as rubbish. And then at the same time, press them like if they're not there, your confession of faith is rubbish. It's one or the other. We we need to stop playing mind games. You're saved by grace, but I mean only if you really work. No matter what obedience we perform, no matter what works we're able to do, we look at all of it and say, are we willing Please don't let that be why you accept me, God. Please don't let that be the basis of my salvation or my assurance. Please let Jesus do it all and be all of it. Just give me Jesus. But isn't Paul already saved? What's this talk of gaining Christ? Because it, it, listen, it's not another level of faith. Paul's talking about here. Like this is for the really serious people. No, this is 101. Beloved, Christ is holding on to us as tightly as he was holding on to Paul. What Paul wanted us to know, or what Paul wanted was to know the gospel was true, not just hope it was. If it could prove its worth in his life by making him better than he was before. And if standing between me and the God who has already accepted me 
are my works, which I hope will gain or prove my acceptance, then I have not yet grasped what salvation is at all. Notice what he goes on to say in this verse, and be found in him. You don't look at me. I want to be found in him. When you look for me to measure whether I'm enough or am doing enough, you need to look in Christ. That is where you can find me. In Christ. Hiding in him, sheltered by his blood, sheltered by his righteousness and grace and love for me, not using for one second anything from myself. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Tell me that's not what we're trying to offer up to God. Look, you did good on your investment with me. Here is my obedience, God. This is the leverage with which I pray and expect a positive answer. This is the leverage with which I expect that things will go generally well for me in my life. I'm doing my best. I'm obeying. I'm, uh, the marks are there. And Paul, of all people, Paul, if anybody had good works that were so good to offer up to God, it would have been Paul. And he says, no, 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 not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Two different kinds of righteousness. One makes me approved before God and the other does nothing to approve me before God. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So there's a righteousness that God accepts, a perfection that God accepts that becomes my own when I throw all of mine away and by faith trust in Him. Then the righteousness I need that God approves of, the righteousness of Christ, it comes washing over me in waves and justifies me forever. And either it's that good or it's on us, even 1% of it, and we need to change our message and stop lying to people and playing head games with people. Now that you're in, we want to tell you the rest of the story. This is only good news if you do your part. And if I don't tell you enough to do your part, you're going to forget that you need to do your part. And so what you're going to learn to want from me and expect from me is that I will beat you and spank you every time you come in here and make sure you're really saved. Because the only place you could look to know that is whether or not you're serving and doing enough. That's Antichrist. And it's evil. And I don't want it anywhere near the people God has given me to shepherd. I need the righteousness that comes to me as a gift from God in Jesus Christ. I don't want the righteousness that comes from me that depends on obedience. That is what we must count as rubbish in the text. Paul's talking about that as trash. How could it be any clearer than this? I cannot look to obedience to the law to make me righteous before God, before or after my salvation. 
So why do Christians push this? You better want to do the law, at least. Or try to, or desire to, or you might not be a Christian. So, what we're going to do is find the law that we can probably pull off and forget the law that we know we can't and try to use that to prove that we're righteous. So you cannot cuss, not support gay marriage, vote the right way, all that stuff. You can do all that stuff. But you can't pull off 24-7 kindness, selflessness, loving your neighbor as yourself. See, that's the law. That's the law. When, when Christ gives commands in the New Testament, that's law from God that must be obeyed. So no more games. No more defining Christianity as I don't do this, I don't say that, I don't go there, I don't like that, I don't support that. We can't even love the people right in front of us. We can't even serve our neighbors, much less our enemies. But that's, when, when people talk about, it, it's, it's really such a funny argument. You know, I, I, if you preach like that, people are going to think that grace is a license to sin. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Right? And when we're, when we're praying to become better believers and, you know, Lord, I want to honor you, what, what, what are we talking about? We're talking about, I want to read my Bible more and pray more. Not, I want to love my enemy. Right? Why, when people, here's what I'd like to know. Why do people get nervous that if you preach grace, there are people in the congregation that might take it too far? You're not in danger of that? You're floating so high above the rest of us that you don't need to worry about that? It's everybody else that needs to worry about that? Right? You need to make sure you don't what, let all these other simps think that grace is really good because you're, you're more mature than they are. Why would I look to my own righteousness if what I wanted to be found in was Christ? Why? We must have a deliberately negative attitude towards our righteousness. Not a passive one and not a neutral one. It has to be deliberately negative. Not counting it, not looking at it, not finding any worth in it whatsoever. We must have a deliberately negative attitude. And listen, Paul is not talking about his pre-conversion state of mind. That he had to forsake in order to be saved. Paul is speaking in the present tense of where he is now in his mind, and in his soul. The believer must have this attitude. We'll find that in verse 15 if we were to go on. The only way to acquire the righteousness God accepts is through faith. That's in the past, that's now, and that's until we're dead. Faith alone. Faith alone. This never changes. Our good works in the flesh are not for God. They are not for His approval. If you'll notice, they're all for the sake 
of our brothers and sisters in Christ and our neighbors and our enemies. Because the work of salvation, the work that was needed to purchase and obtain salvation has been completed. It is finished. Do not look to your sanctification. Do not look to your works to prove your justification. Look to Christ our Savior. We have been justified. Therefore, we have peace with God. Done. The Christian life is not for making peace with God. The Christian life is the result of having peace with God. My sanctification, the process by which God is conforming me to the image of His Son, is taking place in me because God says it is. And that happens at whatever rate God determines because I'm already in Christ. We are not here to measure each other's sanctification. That is not why we gather. That is not why we're in Moundsville. That is not what the Ohio Valley needs, and it won't save anybody. So the saved by grace and not by works conversation is not just for the unbeliever. It's just as necessary for the believer. Why does Paul want this kind of Christianity so badly in verse 10? That I may know Him. Again, Paul's already saved. What is he talking about here? That I may know Him. Believer, God knows us somehow in His sovereignty before the foundation of the world. But we don't truly begin to know Him apparently until we've counted all our righteousness as absolute rubbish and trust in Him alone through faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Why? Do you want to tap into that? We don't live our Christian lives hoping that the power of the resurrection will hold us up. We're hoping the power of our will will quit choosing sin and start choosing God. So we look inward even for the power to be what God has made us and continually calls us to be. If we want that, the power of His resurrection, let us keep trying to earn our salvation or our assurance through our works and through our performance. It has to be counted as rubbish, beloved. Nothing else that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why isn't Paul talking about then getting rid of all the sinful immorality in him? Why is he talking about getting rid of his obedience as assurance, as standing with God? May share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul wanted to die. He wanted to experience what God said had happened to him. It's a very earthy argument. I want to know you. I know that I'm saved. Nobody understood salvation by grace through faith and justification by faith alone as well as Paul, we could argue. And yet he's still saying, years into his life with Christ, I want to know Him. I'm doing this now that I may know Him. 
He didn't just want to be like Jesus in the sense of doing good. Verse 10 reveals he wanted to be like Jesus in the sense of having done whatever God said it would take in order to really know him and be like him. For Jesus, obedience was wholesale giving of his life to God. All of it. And therefore God raised him from the dead. And vindicated every claim he ever made. And Paul says, if that's how far I have to go, I want to die to this idea that I'm helping you accept me by my righteousness. I want to be like Jesus in his death. And I want the power of his resurrection. I want to feel vindicated. Verse 11, that by any means possible. Even faith that looks fully away from self and depends on nothing in the flesh to approve him before God. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants what Jesus had. Paul wants what Jesus did. He too wants to rise from the dead. So he counts everything he could do or has done to achieve that as loss. Because he actually wants to rise from the dead and be vindicated. You see his argument here? The Christian life is also an attempt by grace to stop being righteous on our own. Faith that looks to works for its proof then is dangerous, beloved. Tony, you seem mad. I'm not mad. I'm not mad at all. But we have to see this. Faith that looks to works for its proof is dangerous to our souls. And we don't talk about it enough. We don't. We fuel it, we feed it, we thrive on it. Faith that is depending for its proof on what we do and don't do, and how committed we are or how desirous we are at least for holiness, eventually will lead us away from faith as the means of our standing before God. That's what it'll do. Every time. Every time. Either we will come to believe our works are good enough, and consistent enough on our own scale to prove that we really are justified and will abandon our faith then in self-righteousness, no longer needing the cross, no longer thinking of Christ. Or we'll be honest and realize that we're just not good enough for God, and so we'll abandon our faith. And the church doesn't really help with that because the church doesn't feel like a hospital for wounded saints. It doesn't feel like a proclamation center of good news. It feels like the last thing I could let these people know is how sinful I really am. Right? That, that's, that's what it's like to be a part of the church in America most of the time. You, you can't know who I really am or you, you wouldn't let me in the door. So we just, we fuel hypocrisy. And that's how churches stagnate. Because then you're just governed by total hypocrites that are carnal all the time. Doubting, not believing their salvation, dug in on their traditions. This is the way it will be. This is the way I want it to be. 
not even realizing how divisive that is, that it's sowing discord in the body of Christ. Beloved, abandoning our works is the cost of discipleship for us. Stop trying to gain or prove salvation by the flesh. And just trust Jesus to do all of it. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Oh, wait a minute. Is, is, is Paul saying like more needs to happen? He's saved. What hasn't he obtained? Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul doesn't deny anything about his flesh. What is he talking about here? What is it in context that Paul has not yet obtained? What is it in context? It's not his salvation. We like to take it that way, don't we? We need it to say that so that we can keep our You Better Do the Works program going. We need it to be like this. Paul said he was striving. Paul said he was striving. Paul said he was striving to do what? Keep working and striving and obeying because not even the great Paul thinks he's already obtained that. So don't get cocky. Don't take advantage of grace. No. What, according to Paul in verses 8 through 11, what is it that he does not yet believe he has obtained? The assurance and maturity that come from not believing we have a righteousness of our own that makes us acceptable to God, but only the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ to do it all. Paul says, I'm not there yet in my head. And then he says that crazy line, and I'm not already perfect. Could he be speaking of being in heaven in the presence of God? Absolutely. But in context, in some way, there is a perfection. And it's resting in Christ. God is most glorified in me when I most need what He gives to me. Beloved, this is every Christian in the room right now. We're still striving and stressing and trying and working to earn what can only be obtained by grace through faith. We don't look to the cross for our assurance. We generally look to ourselves. And we teach others to look to themselves. We start it when they're little. God wants you to be like this. God wants you to be like that. True. And there's, there's no gospel in it. And then we teach that what Jesus does is give you the power to do what God would like you to do. That's a different message than what's in the Bible. Are you saved? Are you doing enough? We literally try to count and measure as proof or assurance what Paul says amounts to zero. What Paul says is rubbish. How can you look to it as a basis for your assurance if it's garbage? Our striving as believers, is to stop trying to mix law and gospel. These two beautiful words, holy words from God. Our striving is to stop trying to believe we're just saved by grace, but we aren't sanctified by it. That depends, our sanctification, our conformity to Christ, depends on us and our will and our desires and our effort and our obedience. So most of church life is just kind of 
you know, a chewing the gospel away from everything. Now that you're here, now it's work. I know Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but he didn't mean that. Now the weight and the burden will crush you because now you're saved. And so if you don't feel this mountain of pressure on you to be good, you're probably not saved. Well, how did that happen? How did we let that creep in? Maybe because we've been so obsessed with making sure we don't compromise on things like musical styles. So we bear the fruit of the Spirit then, which you won't find a command in that passage. Text doesn't say bear the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit looks like this. It's an indicative passage. The fruit of the Spirit is. So, well, we'll get to that. That text tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is, what God is doing in us because we belong to Him. But Paul spent the whole letter saying works will be there, but we don't look to them in, in Galatians, talking about Galatians. Do we know why? Why does Paul tell us that works do not justify us before God? That's only by faith. And then tell us what the fruit of the Spirit is. Why would he do that? Why would he give something observable if it isn't, beloved, so that when we see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control coming out of us, that we won't think it's coming from us, but we'll realize it's the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, if we are in Christ, the fruits of the Spirit will be there. Who among us can measure how many and when and how often? Whenever love comes out of me that is selfless, whenever joy comes out of me that is genuine, Whenever peace and gentleness and self-control come out of this wretched sinner, I have to know, oh, that's the Spirit at work. So why would I look to, I'm not looking to that. What in the world are we measuring? Why are we measuring? The scale's already been tipped. If you want to shun the full gift of Jesus, then keep saying the same mantra. Yes, but we need to do this. I hear what you're saying, and it's wonderful, but we make sure we aren't taking advantage of grace. I would love to know how you do that. How we take advantage of something that's unfathomable and immeasurable in its depth and width and breadth and height. How do you overshoot it? Tony, God wants us to obey Him. Stop. Tony, that's all true. I I know it is. Don't deny it for a second. And none of us can do it. So stop it. Stop. And if you want to insist on mixing law and gospel then stop messing around and weakening the law and actually do everything it says. Just live by it then. Because you can't live by both. You can't serve two masters. You can't be saved by a mixture of both, God's grace and your good works. 
But apparently grace isn't good enough for you. And this gift from God is actually tempting you to sin, even though the scripture would say the law will increase the trespass, but that doesn't matter. Right? Stop messing around with your own conscience. Stop messing around with others' consciences. Stop being a hypocrite. Stop being self-righteous and measuring the authenticity of everybody else's conversion. The parable of the wheat and tares is not a command. You know, that there'll be wheat and tares. And what does he say? Yeah, I, I know they're there. I know there's tares and wheat there. But don't start plucking them up because if you do, you're going to pull up wheat too. What does Jesus tell us there? You and I are horrible farmers. We are so obsessed with our works and our goodness and our performance that if we start pushing, validating who's wheat and who's tares, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to pull up wheat along with tares. Do the law if that's what you want to do. And if that's what you want to do, take it somewhere else. But you do the law. You want to look at things like these false teachers in Philippi looked at circumcision as the proof of their standing with God, then do what Paul says in Galatians. Emasculate yourselves. Go the whole way. Stop playing games. Get serious. You're sitting in church right now, very comfortable. There's work to be done. Do you think that you take it more serious than everybody else does? And therefore, you're the real deal and all these other people, you just don't know about them? Beloved, do you really think you are the standard? We haven't begun to scratch the surface of taking God seriously. Man, get that stuff out of here. And don't teach it anywhere in here either. Paul calls those that want to mix Jesus with anything, even our works, dogs, and evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. That's what counting on works is now. It's mutilating your flesh. That's all it's doing. It's killing you. Do we understand this? Using even good works and obedience now is what we look to to know we're in Christ and to know Christ better. I want to know Him better, so I need to shape up and get better. That's doing evil now. Now that Jesus has died and risen and ascended. All we're doing in our efforts and striving for God's approval for works is mutilating our flesh. That's all we're doing. They weren't gaining anything before God. They were losing skin, sometimes literally. If we really want to get serious and know Christ and count all things lost, we need to start listening to Paul. Because that which Paul is counting as loss in the text here is everything he could have looked to for his righteousness. He says, but I press on to make it my own. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Is Paul pressing on to make salvation his own? No, no, no. Look at the next phrase. 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul considered Christian perfection in this verse to be the full comprehension of the fact that his righteousness comes only through faith as the gift of God. That's where I want to be, he says. God considers faith to be righteousness. He told us that. He counts it as righteousness. So stop working and have faith if you want to be as serious as Paul was about his Christianity. Stop doing good works. Some of us probably need to so that we won't make shipwreck of our faith. But maybe the more realistic way to think is stop looking at your good works as having literally one millimeter of ability to gain or to keep your standing before God. The root of Paul's pressing on in verse 12 is that Jesus has already gotten him all the way home. That's key. I'm already in, so I want to run home. I want to get there. Get me to Jesus. That's the Christian life. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. That's Again, that's very interesting. If Paul never considered himself to have arrived spiritually, what exactly is it I'm striving for? That's, that's the question. So you want to do good works. Praise God. That's not a bad desire. But what are you hoping to get from them? What are you thinking they will do for you? This is what's at issue in the text. Rather than living with hope and confidence that it's finished, we're trying to do enough so that we don't longer, uh, no longer have any doubt. We think the, the, that comes from doing enough. What a shame when Christ Jesus is the one who died and was raised for us. What are we looking for? Do we want a confidence that surpasses that of Paul's? A degree of spiritual fortitude that does give us the self-assurance to know that we're saved? No one looks to faith for that. We naturally are going to look to our works, to our performance. Beloved, the greatest threat to a Christian's faith is not our sin or our struggle. It is our lack of faith that Jesus is a great enough Savior to have already overcome it on our behalf. Until we get there, we're just going to continue living in fear and doubt, so consumed with trying to be righteous that we'll never have time to love our neighbor as God intended. And to go beyond that is precisely what Paul is striving for. Paul doesn't want to believe this so that he can just sleep 24-7. Paul wants to believe this so that he can be a true minister of the gospel. I want to be so much like Jesus, he's saying, so into God's will for me and salvation that I just die so he can raise me up again. Take me, God. Take my life. Get me away from me. If Christ has made you his own, no one can snatch you from his hand. We don't press on to get. We press on to receive, beloved. Not even Paul believed he fully understood the gospel to the degree that he didn't still sometimes try to rest in his works. I'm not there yet, he says. I don't consider myself to have grasped the depths of the gospel. But one thing I do in 13, forgetting. So in verse 13, here is the one thing Paul does do, right? One thing I do. This is the one thing Paul doesn't count as rubbish in his life. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is that? Beloved, it's eternal life. Paul isn't working or striving in order to gain that by his works. He is forgetting anything that would make him think he can do some of it. And Christ can just do the rest. He's forgetting his sin, his sinfulness, his mistakes, his failures, and his accomplishments, his circumcision, his zeal for the law, his blamelessness under all of it. That's why he's striving. Because that is impossible in the flesh, and he's in the flesh. He's not straining forward, hoping that he'll reach his destination. That's not how Paul motivates himself as a Christian. Paul is straining toward what he knows already lies ahead in verse 13. He just wants to finally die to himself so that he can get there. Paul is pressing on for that prize that Jesus grants to all who have faith, not the prize that he earned in his lifetime that heaven is a payment for. That is the thing he counts as loss so that he might gain Christ. Christ Jesus has already made Paul his own in verse 12. The upward call is not a call to obedience. It's a call to faith. It's the Father calling us to come home because it's supper time. And he's brought all the bread and the wine. And of this we partake this morning.